This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. The Telegraph. Telegraph. Podcasts. An entirely captainless ship heading towards the iceberg while Truss and Sunak duke it out for who's going to take on the poison chalice. Four. And it's clear who's going to win. It is going to start to look indulgent, contemptuous of how ordinary people are feeling. There's a lot of anguish out there. Three. We are literally at the mercy of the elements. We're like King Lear on the bloody heath. People are terrified now of saying anything that might be offensive because they don't want to be accused of being a bad person or a bigot. Welcome once again to Planet Normal, the Telegraph podcast with Alison Pearson. Hello. And me, Liam Halligan. The grim economic news keeps mounting co-pilot. Since our last trip to Planet Normal, the Bank of England's forecast a 15-month recession, no less with inflation peaking at over 13%. The price cap on household energy bills is forecast to soar by another 80% to £4,300 a year in January. That's around a fifth of the average post-tax income, just on utilities. And mortgage and rental costs are rising, of course, on top of that. Meanwhile, the government's paralysed by a Tory leadership contest. We've had five leadership hustings already, the latest in Darlington on Tuesday, with seven more scheduled before a new Prime Minister's named on the 5th of September. Still weeks to go. Liz Truss is miles ahead in the polls of Tory members, and she's clearly going to win. The longer Rishi Sunak keeps fighting, his tone becoming ever more desperate, the more damage he does to himself, his party and the country. We've been saying for some time, Alison, that given the scale of the challenges facing the UK, this drawn-out Tory psychodrama would start to look not just indulgent, but contemptuous of deepening public anguish as the cost of living crisis mounts. It's time, surely, for the politicking to stop. Time for solutions and leadership before this summer of discontent gives way to an autumn of anger. Yes, indeed. But before we get on to the very cheerful news of the week, (laughs) this is my favourite fact of the week. You're going to love this. The chief executive of Thames Water got a three million pounds golden hello. (laughs) (laughs) This is the alleged water company, which has just given a list of hints as to how to deal with the water shortages, including, oh, you're going to really love this, using a damp flannel instead of a shower. And I thought, have they seen the torso of the co-pilot? How many damp flannels is it going to take to give Halligan a strip wash? (laughs) So we've got that Thames water. And then we've got, I think, actually a strong rival for Numpty of the Week has to be Andrew Bailey. Our friend at the Bank of England. Dear God, has there been ever a weedier wet in public life? It seems to have belatedly occurred to him the things that you were saying about nine months ago, that perhaps interest rates could possibly have gone up a little bit earlier, but never mind, because there's been no ill effects, have there, Liam? None, none whatsoever. It's absolutely fine. Don't worry, the inflation's transitory. (laughs) It's transitory. Oh, that's fine then. That's fine. You see that massive household utility bill? Transitory. (laughs) All that money siphoning its way out of your wallet to the... Petrol company, when you fill up, that's transitory. I think the whole country's falling apart in some senses, isn't it, Alison? Did you read there's an amazing, really good piece by our colleague Ben Marlow, who writes very thoughtful business columns on the state of the water industry, seeing as you talk about it. And, you know, Ben is a bit like me. He's a free market chap, and he's not necessarily arguing for renationalisation of the water industry, though he does point out that many of these privatised water companies have simply failed to invest in updating Victorian pipework. And there's 
millions of litres lost every day of fresh water. And these are the guys that slap on a hosepipe ban, as you now say, while getting a three million quid golden hello. I've been thinking about this. I thought this is Britain in 2022, isn't it? I mean, the attitude is we get paid a lot of public money to do a job, we fail, then we tell the public to alter their behaviour to compensate for our failures. So there are no GP appointments, but let's tell people they'll be fined if they miss the appointment that they can't get. Um, (laughs) You can't afford your stratospheric energy bill because of our crazy net zero commitment, but it's your fault for not insulating. (laughs) Put a hat on. So there's a sort of nothing to do with me Gov culture isn't there. And as you say, there's this slightly surreal thing going on of an entirely captainless ship heading towards the iceberg while Trust and Sunak duke it out for who's going to take on the poison chalice. And, and you know, as you said in, in the intro, I think there's a real serious cause for concern now that these energy prices come the autumn. If they don't do something almost immediately, there's going to be really serious pain, isn't there? I think there is. And I'm worried about the public mood because I do think this endless autumn leadership contest. I mean, chronically, there are seven more leadership hustings, as I've said, and we've only had five so far. We're not even halfway through. And it's clear who's going to win. It is going to start to look, as I said, indulgent, contemptuous of how ordinary people are feeling. There's a lot of anguish out there because when you're paying a fifth of your post-tax income just on the utilities. And that's of that average income, of course. People below average are going to be hit a lot more because we know that they pay disproportionately a bigger chunk of their income on their heating. Then that is a real worry. People are having sleepless nights. You've got businesses worried about how they're going to pay their energy bills. They're going to start laying people off. We can't just have this endless silence. And there's almost a a kind of parlour game balloon debate going on at the sort of university debating society while everyone else outside is wondering what the outcome's going to be. This is a completely false dichotomy, Alison, as you wrote very well, I think, this week in your column between tax reductions on the one hand and direct government assistance on the other. There's going to need to be both because we are in a very, very serious situation. And for Sunak and Trust to pretend that there's this choice between the two of them in terms of policy, it's just not on. The choice is basically up to the Tory members at this point, and they've clearly made their decision. So why should we have this performative, ongoing leadership hustings where the two prime ministerial hopefuls are tearing chunks out of each other, undermining their respective authority. As I've said before, and I know you agree with this, if Rishi Sunak does think he has a future in British politics, he will do himself a lot of favours by bowing out now for the good of the country, because we need to get on with government. We need to be planning for the autumn and the winter in terms of energy security. We need to be making decisions and telling hard-pressed folk way up the income scale toward the middle income and even beyond who are seriously worried now about how they're going to pay for essentials, how that's going to be done. And to keep going on and on and on with this spin and counter spin. And of course, the political media class love it. It's good box office in the dog days of August. But the public doesn't want it. We need to get on now with governing. We need some grown up leadership and fast. You may have noticed from reading my column this week that I am a tad exercised. (laughs) Fuming. (laughs) Fuming. Honestly, I've really had it with these people. I mean, this is the most grotesque failure of energy security. Of course, the war in Ukraine has put on some added pressures, but it is just this absolute long-term madness. So I got my Velma hat on this week and I did a bit of rustling around. We haven't heard Scooby for a while, have we? (laughs) So let's just sum up this marvellous energy policy that successive British governments have had. Our government decided to phase out coal power stations, fail to invest in new nuclear capacity, fail to start fracking. So co-pilot, they put all our eggs in the basket of intermittent renewables or unreliables, as they are more correctly known. And we also now, as I've discovered, rely on interconnectors from the continent. Now, the national grid has said interconnectors from Europe are expected to provide up to 5.7 gigawatts of electricity at peak times 
during this winter. But I was astonished to learn, co-pilot, this past year alone has seen the loss in the UK of two gigawatts of nuclear power. That's Hunterston B and Hinkley Point B being run down. 2.1 gigawatts of coal. That's West Burton A and Ratcliffe being run down. We are not just shooting ourselves in the foot, Liam. We are shooting ourselves in the head. Now, about one quarter of the electricity we are expecting to get from European interconnectors is supposed to come from Norway via the North Sea Link interconnector. And most of Norway's electricity comes from hydropower. And I'm sure you're keeping up with this, Liam, but following prolonged low water levels, the Norwegian government has said they will prioritise the filling of hydropower reservoirs and the security of supply for Norway's own electricity. So Britain may be left going to whistle for that. And all I can say to you is there in Norway, we have an example of a country that acts in its own self-interest, a country that doesn't rush to divest itself of reliable energy sources to make it to burnish its politicians' green credentials. And I believe that Norway is going to be deciding on the exact mechanism next week. National Grid's supposed to have procedures in place to ensure that the lights don't go out. However, given the question mark over Norwegian supplies and expectation that France will be importing rather than exporting power this winter, power cuts in our own dear country cannot be ruled out. Why, I'm asking you, co-pilot, is our government so short-sighted and stupid? It really is shocking and I didn't think we'd get to the point where Alison Pearson was telling me about in- interconnectors and Norwegian hydro. It's a nightmare, Halligan. This is once again, having moved from the hospital bed occupancy correspondent, I'm now wrestling with Norwegian gigawatts. God, what have you, you done to me, You've turned man? into a sort of zombie economist. You can't be shot, you know, just keep <laughs> spurting out statistics from Sorry. every orifice. Sorry if it was boring, but I was reading it and I was, you know, if you actually think what it means, it's outrageous. We have not got even Nora Bat knicker elastic of flexibility in our system. I mean, it's not just going to be the lights going out, is it? It's going to be, we're not going to have any internet. These absolute morons who have followed the siren calls of the renewable blob, they keep claiming these renewables, so cheap, storage will come along any minute now to fix the intermittency problem. It's not going to happen, Liam, is it? We are literally at the mercy of the elements. We're like King Lear on the bloody heath. (laughs) So there is a danger of outages. I think senior civil servants and senior politicians are now acknowledging that sotto voce. And that is indeed a ridiculous situation for us to be in. There has been a trend over recent years, decades even, for politicians to grab the virtue of being seen to close down fossil fuels without thinking about energy security. We've been far too complacent. We've been talking on Planet Normal for weeks now about our reliance on interconnectors. We import about a third of our energy at the moment. We're a net oil importer these days. And it's not just oil and gas, and particularly the Langland gas pipeline from Norway, as you say. It's also the interconnector. And it's astonishing that a country even like Norway, with 90% of its electricity coming from hydro, is having energy security issues, as well as being a massive producer of gas in European terms. So we've had this drought and these low water levels combining with the energy security issues raised by the overreach towards renewables, The plus, of course, the geostrategical implications of the war in Ukraine. It's ironic that All this is coming home to roost now because on oil markets, actually, oil markets are easing slightly because we're inching towards a deal with the Iranians. Iranian oil could be unsanctioned quite soon as Joe Biden wanders around the world trying to do oil deals to bring oil prices have actually come down a bit. But in Europe, in particular in the UK, we have a particular problem with storage, particularly of gas. You've talked in the past, we both have, about the rough storage facility and undersea cavern off the coast of Yorkshire. Successive governments, not least the Conservatives in recent years, failed to do a deal with Centrica to reinvest in that storage facility, to keep it up to date, to keep it current. That now looks like a ridiculous decision. We basically 
outsourced our gas storage capacity to Germany, the Netherlands, the French. And as we saw during the COVID pandemic, when there was a mighty reach for protective personal equipment, PPE, when the chips are down, countries will look after themselves. There's no way that they're going to export stuff to us while risking outages themselves. So I do think we're in a very difficult position. I do think we need to be talking about this honestly and openly, not just journalists like us talking to experts in the field, doing some research and then talking about it on podcasts. This needs to be part of the national debate. And yet even in these televised hustings that we're getting for the Tory leadership, there's not nearly enough discussion about these very pointed issues. Forget nonsense about his shoes and her earrings. It's pathetic. We need to start talking about how are you going to keep the lights on? What is your plan for gas storage? How are you going to deal with escalating bills and millions of people refusing to pay their bills and the concerns about public order there will be when people are having to pay upwards of a third and more of their incomes being of below average income on their utilities while energy companies are making massive, massive profits. Isn't that though, because net zero has become another of the sort of bien pensant sacred cows. If you object to it, you're a grubby populist. I think that there will be, when the penny drops, that we have below our land and our seas years worth of really good energy. And our government, successive governments, have taken decisions, deliberate decisions, to not exploit that energy and putting us now, men, women and children, in tremendous tremendous trouble. I mean, the proportion of the statutory state pension, which will be going on elderly people's energy bills. I mean, it is just terrifying. So I think that there will be public anger and we don't want to see disorder. But I wouldn't be at all surprised if there were riots on the streets. And I would certainly, co-pilot, I would certainly go on a march because I am absolutely disgusted at the way this elite virtue signalling class have abandoned the British people. I think the government's basic responsibilities are to provide clean water, light, heat and food. All of these things are now in jeopardy. They absolutely fill me with disgust. I don't know if you saw, there's a few things been going around on social media one of which is Ed Davey, leader of the Liberal Democrats, giving an interview to... Kathy Newman, I saw that, yeah. Yes, at Channel 4 News, in which he really congratulates himself and almost single-handedly having stopped fracking in the UK. So, Ed, by November, when people are too poor to put on the kettle, we'll really be thanking you on stopping us fracking, which I understand there's a massive boom in fracking in the United States. The Americans aren't going to be left without energy. No way. And there's also absolutely priceless Nick Clegg, when he was still in the UK, solemnly telling the camera that no, 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 it would be completely futile building any more nuclear power stations because they wouldn't come on stream until 2021 or 2022. Who would be needing in 2022 any extra nuclear power? Can we have a think about that? (laughs) (laughs) So here you have these two apparently eminent men, absolute idiots. And we see, I don't know what you think about what we're going to do. France is paying about £6 billion to fully nationalise EDF, its energy provider, which will give the French government some control over their energy prices. They have, I think, slapped a a limit of 4% rises. They're paying massively less, the French and the Americans. We've heard from Planet Normal listeners this week in North America across Europe, they are paying so much less per gigawatt or therm or whatever than the British people. So we have been betrayed. Betrayed, Halligan. We have been betrayed. I certainly think there's been a huge failure of policy analysis by the media as well as the political class. Our so-called trade is to blame because we focus so much on complete nonsense and tittle-tattle and we almost disdain people who try and bring to the fore genuine issues that matter to people. (laughs) Crikey. Mm. 
And that's terrible. And look, I do think there's a long-term move away from fossil fuels that has to happen. I do think that there are better ways to power our planet than sending people down a mile below ground to dig out coal and then burn it in a way that's dirty and does harm the environment. But it's got to go in stages. It's got to go in a way that is all about maintaining decent living standards, indeed energy security and food security for ordinary people, not which politicians can show more virtue than other politicians. We've been really naive about this, both the political and the media class. We are an outlier in the UK in that we have put the cost of renewable subsidies on energy bills, trying to hide them on people's energy bills rather than paying for them out of general taxation. So we are an outlier there. And I think it's now slam dunk that we won't do that again. They have to be removed, those renewable energy levies on people's bills. If we want to subsidise renewables, everybody tells me how cheap renewables are these days. Well, in that case, they don't need subsidies, do they? There's lots of decent technology that's going on. And Britain's at the forefront of a lot of this technology. We're at the forefront of using hydrogen for fuel. Our technology in this area is excellent, but we're not implementing that technology. We're not innovating quickly enough. Government isn't making life easy, even helping the entrepreneurs and industrialists who are trying to solve our energy crisis. It's been all about virtue signaling and greenwashing. And you're right, there will be protests. Of course, we want to see peaceful protests on planet normal. We want to see people sticking up for themselves. But I, along with you, Alison, I also do fear that in some cases that protest could turn particularly nasty. We're kids of the 70s and 80s. We remember what it's like when the economic rubber really hits the road and people not only get angry and upset about their standard of living, they also feel that the political and media class are distanced from them. And never has that class been more distanced, I think, in our lifetimes from ordinary people than it is now. Well, it actually took Gordon Brown this week, you know, come dripping out of his catafalque, (laughs) demanding an emergency cabinet pointing out that a study by York University a few months ago had estimated that April's 54% increase in fuel prices would trap 27 million people in 10 million households in fuel poverty. And that, Liam, is now 35 million people in 13 million households, almost half of the population of the United Kingdom are under threat of fuel poverty in October. And we've had various emails, some of which I'll read out later, but people are pointing out it isn't just purely about families being unable to afford it. A lot of people will scrabble together these three and a half, four grand that they don't really have. But what they will then stop doing is going out, treating themselves to a meal out, cinema, theatre, sports events, kids' clubs. Everybody's going to just stop spending. It's going to be stop dead. And that then, these businesses, we know, don't we, the hospitality businesses, the manufacturing businesses, which have just picked themselves up off the ground after lockdown, are now going to have this massive kick in the teeth. Do you think that we will have a bad recession? I have to say now, I'm even thinking the D word. I'm even thinking depression. How are we going to get out of it? We have to be careful that we don't talk ourselves into a worse position than we are. That's absolutely vital. I actually think that the Bank of England, having ignored a lot of the problems for months and months and months, having dissed commentators like me as being alarmist for saying that inflation would hit double digits, they may even now be over-egging it in the other direction, talking about a 15-month recession, an economic contraction for five or six quarters in a row. I don't buy that, actually. I think that's overkill. I think the rhetoric is running away there with the governor of the Bank of England. Having said that, it is, of course, a very serious situation. And Gordon Brown, he's right about this. Whatever you say about him, he does understand when there is a sense of political urgency in the country. And there is that sense of political urgency now. And he's right. The Tories shouldn't be mucking about with some leadership hustings for the sake of public confidence in how we're governed. We need to be seen now as a political class and indeed as a media class focusing on what really matters to ordinary people. And what really matters to ordinary people isn't this ongoing tussle between Truss and Sunak. What matters, as Gordon Brown rightly said, is how they're going to pay their bills 
any assistance they're going to get, how they're going to keep their business open, how they're going to meet payroll in order that they don't have to shed employees. And we can't hang around for another three, four, five weeks until we get a proper government. Because if we think there's an energy crisis now, it's obviously going to get a lot worse when the weather turns, people get colder, people get scared. The use of heating goes up. The use of energy in general goes up a great deal. And indeed, the geopolitics of Russia-Ukraine get even worse. People feel they're being disdained and derided by these ongoing political theatrics at a time when there are a lot of people not sleeping and not just because it's hot, but because they're worried about how they're going to make ends meet. Can I ask you to say prudence like Gordon Brown, please? (laughs) Prudence. (laughs) With apologies to all my friends north of the border. (laughs) Well, we'll be ending up this week, co-pilot, stocking up on candles, matches, logs, Tinned goods. What's that stuff mountaineers eat? Kendall. Kendall mint cake. Kendall Kendall mint cake. Hot water bottles. Anyway, your co-pilot, as you can tell, I've had enough. I've had enough. We may even have to start a political party at this rate. Oh, my God. Can you imagine? (laughs) It's painful to imagine that someone would ever have paperwork about child abuse and not do everything in their power to bring the abuser to justice. But I've been speaking to people who say that seems to have happened in the Jehovah's Witnesses. Not only was he aware of the abuse, he had heard the confession of it. My colleagues and I on the Telegraph Investigations team have been gathering evidence for the best part of a year, but I don't think any of us were prepared for what we'd uncover. You just wonder, what what is going on here? I'm Catherine Rushton, and this is Call Bethel, a new audio series from The Telegraph. Subscribe now, wherever you get podcasts. There has been a little bit of good news, I think, in, I suppose, what they crudely call the culture wars. Since the recent announcement that the gender identity service at the Tavistock Clinic was going to close. We have, co-pilot, been seeing quite a bit more public pushback against the aggressive trans ideology, which has taken root in so many of our institutions. And we've had lots of emails, haven't we, from Planet Normal listeners talking about what's been happening to their children in schools. This week, Suella Braverman, the Attorney General, warned that teachers who allow their pupils to socially transition, that's to change their name to the opposite gender without their parents' consent, could be in breach of their duty of care to the child and open themselves up to a negligence claim. So that's Braverman really turning the tables now on all these people who are acting in a very threatening way against parents who want to fight back against these forces that are raining down on their children. Now, our guest on The Rocket this week, Liam, has been at the forefront of protecting children from what he sees as a dangerous and divisive gender ideology. James Essers was born and raised in Dublin. He qualified and practised as a criminal defence barrister before holding a number of senior roles in the civil service, including head of policy at the Crown Prosecution Service and head of strategic legislation at the Home Office. James gradually became dissatisfied with the law and he grew increasingly passionate about working with vulnerable children. For five years, he was a volunteer counsellor at Childline while undertaking a part-time master's degree in psychotherapy. In 2021, James was three years into that degree and he'd just been signed off to set up his own private practice when one day, without warning, he was expelled from the course for bringing the profession into disrepute. Why? Well, James Essers had started a government petition requesting the safeguarding of exploratory therapy for children with gender dysphoria. He'd also been advocating caution against medicalising vulnerable children. James Liam had come across numerous children who claimed they were trans, but who clearly had no idea what that meant, nor did they grasp the enormous consequences of embarking on puberty blockers. 
James Esses, I'm sad to say, has suffered a huge amount of abuse, even death threats, for the stand he has taken against an aggressive and increasingly politicised trans ideology. In the light of the CAS report, which accused therapists of rushing children into unevidenced and life-altering treatment, I asked James Esses, what was his reaction to the news that the gender identity service at the Tavistock Clinic would be closed? When I first heard the news, quite frankly, I was elated. There have been whistleblowers speaking out about this for many, many years. And we've heard some of the horror stories, children basically being placed on this one-way path towards potentially irreversible medicalization. I think it's very good that Hilary Cass has acknowledged the damage that this clinic has done in her report. Obviously, we're still awaiting the final report. Interestingly, both sides of the argument are hailing this as a success, which tells me that it's not as clear-cut as it might otherwise be. Obviously, myself and colleagues are very happy to hear that this damaging clinic has been closed. However, I've seen trans activists basically celebrating this and saying, well, actually, if anything, it's going to enable more young people to transition as a result. Over the past decade, James, the Gender Identity Service has been overwhelmed by a sudden increase in the number of young people in distress over their gender. But before any research was concluded on the long-term impact of puberty blockers, the Tavistock Clinic was making the drugs widely available to those youngsters. What would your normal reaction be to children coming in and presenting with those anxieties? Basically the same as one would do for any other mental health condition because in order to transition in this country you must be diagnosed with gender dysphoria which is a mental health condition. I think a lot of people like to try and pretend that that doesn't exist but it very much does particularly in this country under the law and the core tenet of psychotherapy and counselling is exploration and it is exploring with that individual what has caused them to feel this way, contributing factors, other comorbidities, challenging that client when appropriate, and exploring the variety of options that might be open to them. Because as we know with mental health conditions, people can have a variety of of delusions, or they can believe things about themselves that simply are not true and are even damaging. But for some reason, when it comes to this gender identity crisis, therapists and medical practitioners are being told to basically affirm the distressing force that somebody has, that they are in fact trapped inside the wrong body. So you would, for example, if you had a young girl presenting with anorexia nervosa, you wouldn't say, oh yes, you're massively overweight. You wouldn't confirm her in her delusion, would you? Well, this is precisely the example that I often use. And again, you know, we don't treat anorexia through that means, nor do we treat it through liposuction. And yes, what we're offering for gender dysphoria are hormones and surgery. That doesn't mean that we don't empathetically and actively listen to that young person. It's not about trying to dismiss. It's about hearing them in terms of how they feel. But again, trying to explore what has caused that. For many these days, gender dysphoria has kind of been seen as the thing to be treated as opposed to a symptom of something wider going on for that young person and a wider disease in themselves and in the world. Something that has really concerned me, which you've just touched upon, is this so-called affirmative approach. Now, in some countries, including the United States and Australia, you basically have to treat a child's declaration that they were born in the wrong body as sacrosanct and view any of their other problems through that prism. Does that end up putting people in your profession in an untenable situation? I would argue that it goes against the core ethics of being a therapist, which is to not go into the therapy room with a predetermined outcome. But myself, colleagues, we feel that the message that's being handed down to us from the powers that be, from the therapeutic bodies in the UK, is really that you should be affirming and that it's not OK to challenge. I mean, we saw recently this attempt to try and force through a conversion therapy legislation to include gender identity in that. And that risks criminalising ethical exploratory therapy. And we've seen that happen in numerous other jurisdictions. What's your theory? What is it about trans that has particularly given it this sacred status? Why is it hands-off, 
don't challenge, don't press. It's been a perfect storm, really. Think about the emergence of theories like postmodernism and this idea that absolutely everything now is subjective and all that matters is lived experience. And so that type of narrative is used to counter what we know to be biological objective truths about the fact that human beings are either men or women. Coupled with this, we've got this increased coddling, particularly of young people, especially as they go through education, you know, equivocating words with actual violence to the point that people are terrified now of saying anything that might be offensive, even if it is speaking truth to power, because they don't want to be accused of being a bad person or a bigot. In the last few years, we've seen a huge increase in youngsters seeking treatment for gender dysphoria. Now, historically, there were always a small number of children, rare, really, and nearly always boys who thought they were girls. But now, James, it's overwhelmingly girls who are coming forward to transition, something like a 4,000% increase. Let's be fair, could it be because it's become more acceptable to voice such feelings? Or is it, as some critics fear, a social contagion, a craze of the kind that teenage girls have always got themselves into? I mean, you know, in my day, it was, you know, loving the Osmonds or henna tattoos or whatever. But of course, this is a craze with unbelievable long-term consequences, isn't it? Yes, well, I'm very much of the opinion that it is the latter. And we see this with other health conditions as well. I was doing some research recently on the significant increase in the number of teenage girls presenting with Tourette's when traditionally that was a condition that was associated with boys. And we're seeing now a similar trend with gender dysphoria as well. It's not really a surprise when we think about the messaging that's being used in relation to being trans. It's very much seen as kind of the new trend. And I'm forever seeing even charities who should be more careful about the language they use, but saying that to be trans is something to be celebrated. And I would imagine there are a lot of young people out there going through puberty, a lot of changes going on in their bodies, possibly feeling very insecure and self-conscious. And here they're being told that if you come and sign up to this fad, you can be beautiful and you can be celebrated. I'm firmly of the view that this increase in the number of young girls presenting with this is social contagion. I've spoken to families who've been caught up in this. You know, we often forget, don't we, that it isn't just the young person. It's mothers and fathers and siblings who have to see their family member suddenly making this change. And it seems to me that there are sort of cult-like elements to it, that the young person is, as you say, maybe a vulnerable young person. You get these people effectively grooming them online, I would say. Do you think there is a kind of a cult-like element to it? I do, unfortunately. It's their own responsibility of parents to keep their children safe, to not let them come to harm, particularly irreversible harm. And that means not always letting them do whatever they may want to do in the moment. But nowadays, if a parent does not think, for example, that their young 10, 11-year-old should be on a path of medicalisation, these children are being told by these charities and these online communities that their parents are transphobic. So this is a terrifying time for parents because they want to keep their children safe, but they also risk, unfortunately, completely alienating their children because of the way in which they're being groomed. We heard actually on Planet Normal from one teacher who was at a girls' school in London and was given a document for parents' evening, and in the first column was the name of the girl... And in the second column was the name that they were known as a school, possibly uh, a new male name. And in the third column was whether the parents were aware of the fact that their child was called something completely different at school. And if they weren't aware, this teacher was told that they were not to let them know. Is that illegal, James? Should be illegal, shouldn't it? I think it should be. And I was disappointed to see that the Department for Education have said they're not going to be releasing any further guidance in terms of managing this issue amongst others in schools in relation to children presenting as transgender. But for some reason, when it comes to gender ideology, this is treated differently to every other example we could think of. If I thought of any other example of a school becoming aware that one of their pupils was going through some sort of mental distress or even potentially suffering from a mental health condition and then to withhold that information from the parents would be a complete safeguarding breach. But here 
in some cases, it's seen as kind of the gold standard. It's bizarre and it's dangerous. I'd like you to tell Planet Normal listeners just a bit about how you got caught up in this Kafkaesque world. James, you'd successfully practised as a a criminal barrister and you were undertaking a part-time master's degree in psychotherapy. And then in 2021, you were three years into that degree. You'd just been signed off to set up a private practice. And then one day, without warning, you were expelled by email for, quote, bringing the profession into disrepute. What was that all about? Yes, well, uh, I'd begun counselling as a volunteer at Childline for a number of years, and I, I found this so fulfilling. I wanted to do this with the rest of my life. But in the background, I was becoming more and more concerned about this ideology, particularly its influence amongst the therapeutic community. I co-founded this group called Thoughtful Therapists, who are equally concerned clinicians. And at the time, this is at the start of last year, I wrote a petition to the government asking them to please safeguard exploratory therapy for children with gender dysphoria. And it was basically off the back of this petition and the advocacy I was doing at the time that I was expelled out of the blue one day. And really, in that single email, my entire life turned upside down and the the vocation that I'd spent years and tens of thousands of pounds working towards went up in smoke. I raised concerns about the fact that the NSPCC seemed to be working hand in glove with Stonewall. You know, I walked into the counselling room one day for one of my shifts and there was Stonewall posters plastered all over the counselling room pushing an ideological message which I was concerned about because as counsellors we should be able to have difficult conversations and disagree with one another and I found out from senior management in the NSPCC that Stonewall had been consulted in terms of their for example their website page on gender identity which is basically on my reading a kind of roadmap towards transitioning so I, I was concerned about the influence that Stonewall was having and clearly Childline and the NSPCC didn't want to hear about this and the final straw for them seemed to be that I asked if I could simply identify myself in public as a childline counsellor and they told me that I could not because I would quote put children off coming through to childline. So Stonewall we should say famously had a you know an extraordinary and, uh, and beneficial history campaigning for gay rights and it seems to me that having you know, to a large extent, successfully won that battle for gay rights, has now picked up this new battle, which is trans, which is very different in kind, isn't it, James? Because when there was this suggestion that people like you counselling children who thought they might be trans, that it was the same as gay conversion therapy, how much is there a political agenda going on here? It seems to be extremely powerful to me. Well, In essence, it appears as if they've turned their backs on the very people that they're meant to be standing up for. In fact, there's concerns that this entire narrative around gender identity is basically allowing a sort of subtle conversion therapy for gay people. I mean, we know from research that a lot of people with gender dysphoria will come out as gay. And I'm hearing time and time again, anecdotally in certain circles, that, you know, there are young people out there suffering from internalised homophobia. I'm not even sure that people know how serious this is. Now, if you give a 13-year-old girl testosterone, what the hell are you going to do to her body and her mind? Well, this is it. It's a slippery slope down pathways of medicalisation. All the studies show that if you have a child with gender dysphoria and you just leave them well alone, even offer them some therapy, that they will settle into themselves. By contrast, we see that if a child starts on puberty blockers, they are almost certain to go on to take cross-sex hormones when they get older. So it very literally is a slippery slope. I mean, with puberty blockers and Hilary Cass touched upon this, you know, this is experimental treatment. It's not designed for this purpose. And cross-sex hormones, as you say, are extremely powerful and if taken in conjunction with puberty blockers that were started before puberty can leave a young person infertile. I know it's absolutely tragic and the other thing I wanted to talk to you about really is that in wider society we're seeing politicians and other opinion formers very very wary aren't they about talking about self-identification and recently Sajid Javid when he was the health secretary he actually said James The word women should not be removed from ovarian cancer guidance. I mean, why is this frightening intelligent people? Why are they so scared to give a common sense answer? There's some who clearly for political gain or strategy 
just seek to avoid talking about it altogether, which I think is a real shame, actually, because this is the issue of our time and it affects so many people in our society, whether it's children's welfare or women's rights. So to keep shtum simply is not good enough. How much criticism and opprobrium have, have you personally experienced for speaking out? From kind of day dot, it's basically been a bit of an onslaught on social media, which unfortunately has become the norm these days. And, you know, the usual death threats. Gosh. You know, I try and tell myself these days that actually when these individuals resort to these slurs or these acts of aggression, it simply means they've got no argument. But it's not pleasant, particularly when the sole reason I spoke out about this in the first place was because I was concerned about the well-being and welfare of children. James, I know you're taking your training institute and therapeutic regulatory body to court for discrimination. You have raised, I believe, over £100,000 so far in crowdfunding, which is fantastic. We're going to put the details of that in the show notes so Planet Normal listeners can chip in if they want to. Where are you with those cases and, and what shape do you foresee that past taking? As a former lawyer myself, I always feel that litigation should be the last resort. But I think for many of us these days, it's become the only resort. Litigation is expensive and it's drawn out. I had a preliminary hearing a couple of months ago. We're waiting for the result in that. And then there'll be a trial date set. There's a chance because of backlogs that this might not get to trial until the middle or end of 2023, which isn't ideal. As always, I'm extremely thankful to the utter generosity of complete strangers who have backed me in this. I'm bringing this case of course, to seek personal justice for myself, but it's also to represent those who don't have a voice and to send a message out there to employers and to educational institutes that they will not be able to shut down free speech on such an important topic again. I feel overwhelming emotion and, and just a deep sense of loss and sadness because I, I still want to be there helping these young people who are struggling through life. I hope that one day I'll get the opportunity to do so again. I certainly hope you do. Well, James, I know I speak for all Planet Normal listeners in saying we absolutely admire you and we wish you well in your struggle. And I certainly think that you'll be vindicated by history, but here's hoping that you're vindicated a lot sooner than that. Thanks so much for coming aboard the rocket today. Thanks, Alison. I think you're right, Alison. I do think there's a sense of movement in this debate. I was just looking back through previous Planet Normal stowaways, the roll call of honour, as we like to call it. Mm. We have touched on this issue a little bit, haven't we, since we've been taking trips to Planet Normal. Back in October 2020, Helen Pluckrose, the author, gave us an interview. And then in February 2021, Sharon Davis, the Olympic swimmer, of course, who's been campaigning mm. for fairness for female-born competitors in sport. And I think certainly in the world of sport, there are now signs that the authorities, the governing bodies of sports, athletics, rugby are now starting to push back, are now daring to assert common sense and justice really for female competitors. And I think this decision to close down the Tavistock Clinic in North London is very much in keeping with what we're seeing in sports, small incremental progress, but progress nonetheless. It is everywhere, Liam. I think we have to ask, how has it been possible? Stonewall is one of the charities, Mermaids is another. They have infiltrated the thinking in schools, universities, civil service, not just public sector, private sector, people in these organisations are competing to sign up to get a badge from Stonewall about how diverse and trans-friendly they are. I think it's largely been a baleful influence with all the ramifications of what the CAST report said was unevidenced treatment. We literally don't know what the effect is, but it's been pushed so aggressively and Anybody who tries to push back, be it a therapist like James or a concerned teacher or parent, you're shouted down, you're transphobic, you're a bigot, and thus any sensitive discussion is not permitted. And even just this week, Liam, there's a story every day, basically, isn't there? So NHS Wales has set up a website to give advice about periods, and it refers throughout to, quotes people who bleed. 
no mention of women or girls. And actually, all people can bleed, Liam, can't they? You can bleed from a cut finger or a cut foot. But no, it's people who bleed, which isn't even biologically correct. The terms they're looking for are girls and women. But these words are being erased. This is from public health advice. This is absolutely outrageous, really. And it is a cult. I'm very... Very, very worried about it. And I congratulate Suella Braverman for basically saying that schools should only use a child's preferred pronoun on the advice of a medical professional. Schools have got no right to encourage children to change their identity and not inform the parents. This is, a, as James S has told us, a huge safeguarding issue. And I congratulate James and Suella Braverman on starting to take a stand. And I think the public will be right behind them. Amen to all that, co-pilot. And you asked how we got here. We got here because people don't speak out, because people are scared of being isolated and they're worried what other people will think of them. Common sense is being suppressed. It's a combination of that, that really corrosive virtue signalling political culture. But I'd say it's also financial interests. Look, these puberty blockers are made by big pharmaceutical companies. There's a lot of money to be made here. A lot of the lobby groups get public funding or they get money from private sector companies as well. This is a cottage industry, if you like. And in the end, it's only going to be overcome by brave people speaking out and saying, no, this is completely wrong. And I think there is a bit of a sea change happening here now, not least due to the people like James S's who have been really pummeled for speaking out, but have spoken out nonetheless. Now it's time for our listener emails. Please keep your wonderful messages coming. We absolutely love reading them. And as the co-pilot will tell you, I often rip them off quite cheerfully for my own Daily Telegraph column. So your tune has changed because whenever I used to say that, you used to push back, right? And you used to quote T.S. Eliot and some mother nonsense. But now you've been forced to embrace your kleptocracy, haven't you? It's valuable research and, in fact, brilliant stories. So this week, you won't be surprised to learn, we've had an enormous amount of emails about the raging cost of living crisis. Michael says... My village shop post office is closing for good in October because their energy bill is increasing from 8,000 per annum to 20,000. Madness. And Simon says, The pub business is known for being tough with a high suicide rate amongst landlords. The inn we stayed at recently has had its energy bill rise from 15,000 to 35,000. That's just for now. And this on top of two years of lockdowns and terrible staffing shortages. And Michelle says, it's not just about freezing pensioners. How many businesses will go bust? How many jobs will be lost? Handouts are all well and good, but the amount required to keep people out of destitution will only grow as these spiralling input costs keep driving up prices and demand for unemployment benefit grows. When we're facing the inevitable blackouts in January, attention will once again turn to the Ukraine conflict as the government and media gaslight us as to the true reasons we're enduring this. But responsibility rests squarely with each and every government that chose to sacrifice Britain's energy security on the altar of net zero. This was purely self-inflicted. This is from Michael. Dear Alison and Liam, I was at the Eastbourne Hustings where the Green demonstrators were booted out. Luckily, I got to question Liz Truss. I asked her, with hindsight, the mathematical modelling that led to lockdown may have caused more harm than good. Before restricting our right to heat our homes or drive our cars, will you critically examine the scientific groupthink behind net zero? And this was Liz Truss's answer, as reported by Michael. I do think sometimes we use mathematical models badly where they're not appropriate. The housing algorithm is a similar case where it's a human decision whether or not to build houses in a local community. It shouldn't be down to an algorithm. So we've always got to be careful to intermediate with our own thinking about what's right for our society. Having been through the lockdown and seen the experience of other countries, I do think we went too far, said Liz Truss, and I would not want to have another lockdown. 
and no lockdown would happen under my leadership. I can assure you of that. And that line was, of course, reported in the newspapers. But on the subject of net zero, Liz Trust went on, we do need to transition to net zero, but I want to do so in a way that doesn't clobber households and doesn't clobber businesses. That's why I'd have an immediate moratorium on the green energy levy while we look at better ways of delivering net zero using private sector innovation and technology to deliver. And Michael continues, Planet Normal's right to be calling for Rishi Sunak to stand down. Things are too serious to delay. Truss is still mouthing parties about net zero, but she does seem nearer to reality than most politicians. Every week, every day is precious to reopen coal-fired power stations and frack for gas, says Michael. We don't need trials or inquiries. We need action authorised at the highest level now. Keep firing up the rocket of right thinking. Well, Liam, I find that very encouraging from Liz Trust, and I'm sure lots of listeners will be pleased to hear that one of the Tory leadership candidates is saying that she would never lock down again and is also has a, a healthy mistrust of, of the algorithms which got us into the lockdown in the first place. This is from John. The Conservative leadership election is a self-indulgent and irrelevant fiasco. It is run by a coterie of jobsworth bureaucrats who are putting the petty requirements of procedure ahead of the realities of a crisis. It's like insisting that the pencils are lined up neatly while the building collapses around you. You'd swear from their behaviour that both candidates were new brooms about to sweep clean, not each in their own way, architects of the energy and the NHS crises we now face. It's really hard not to feel depressed by this. And PJ says, Future generations will look back in horrified wonder at a governmental class that, because of its being enthralled to and terrified of a shrill, demented green lobby, willfully consigned its country to economic ruination and its people to penury, even as it trumpeted the benefits of the attainment of net zero. They would look back in wonder too that such people governed a country with centuries worth of energy at its disposal, even as they wholly ignored the fact that eliminating Britain's 1% contribution to global carbon emissions wouldn't make a blind bit of difference to the climate of the planet. I cannot think of any example in the entire history of mankind when the rulers of a nation deliberately set themselves on a course that would guarantee its virtual destruction as a socially cohesive and prosperous polity. One has to believe that it will not come to this. But the only thing that's going to stop it now is a colossal upsurge of popular revolt, itself a worrying phenomenon for any country. This is from Tom. I certainly don't want Planet Normal to be an echo chamber, so I'm glad you got Michael Jacobs on. This, of course, Alison, is Professor Michael Jacobs, former advisor mm. to then Prime Minister Gordon Brown, a leading intellectual on the left of politics. I don't read The Guardian, says Tom, but it's interesting to see what I'm missing. But goodness, how awful are what Professor Jacobs calls Liz Truss's populist policies? Do forgive me, but I was under the impression we were in a democratic society where we elect our politicians. This amply demonstrates that Michael and his ilk would much prefer a situation where governments could rule without the irritation of the great unwashed, wanting horrible policies like affordable energy, secure borders, robust defence budgets. What dreadful people we all are. Yours ever, Tom, a long-time listener, thanks for your weekly dose of sanity. And it's interesting, Alison, because we do have a range of guests on Planet Normal and... I had a really balanced set of emails from listeners. Yes. Some people really praising Michael Jacobs for being very coherent and honest, praising him for coming on Planet Normal, mm -hmm. you know, a, a flagship Telegraph podcast, and others were more in line with what Tom was saying. What I would say, though, is that I'm proud of Planet Normal, that we do have such a broad range of guests on, and I think our podcast is all the stronger for it. Well, I was very grateful to hear him didn't agree with everything he said and but look Liam in this week we've said the person who's talking the most sense is Gordon Brown indeed <laughs> it's the only one saying we're, in, we're heading for a catastrophic emergency which everyone except the Westminster classes can see so I absolutely think we give credit where credit is due Luke says Liz Trust seems to appeal to readers of the Telegraph but not to ordinary voters like me she comes across as wooden and false and I don't believe a word she says it looks like she will be the next Prime Minister and therefore I'll be voting Lib Dem of the two candidates only Sunak could perhaps win my vote finally co-pilot 
Rob says, you'll remember this, Alison is right. Oh, of course. (laughs) (laughs) Should I read on or not? No, I think everything he goes on to say is really superfluous. Actually, a listener wrote in and was quite cross that I'd said Alison is right. I am often wrong as as Planet Normal listeners. Yeah, but when you're wrong, I'm right instead. (laughs) Yeah. So between us, we got it covered. And that's it from Planet Normal for another week as we leave our sanctuary of sweet reason, our flying refuge of reason views. Email of the week. It's your turn, Alison. Is it Rob? Well, it would be Rob every time for me. But no, I think the mug this week should go to John for describing the Conservative leadership elections as a self-indulgent and irrelevant fiasco. How right you are, John. John would like to send in his full details to the Planet Normal email address. And I'll be looking out for that exact phrase in a Alison Pearson column sometime <laughs> soon. And as we speed away from our beloved Planet Normal and the madness of Planet Earth comes back into view, thanks as ever to our producers, Isabel Bouchard, Elliot Lampett, and our editor, Zoe Hitch. Stay safe and in touch with us and with each other. Until next week, it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from him. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.